with your word to lead us away from temptation, to deliver us from the evil one, Lord, to bring us to a place where we are ready to enter your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 7. As we continue our look in this, uh, this great book that Paul has written as kind of a, an explanation of what it is that he teaches broadly, this is his unpacking of the gospel, the good news. So hopefully if you haven't uh, been with us throughout the series so far, we'll still bring you up to speed as we, as we uh, dive into it. But for now, let's read Romans chapter 7 together, or stand as, as, as I read Romans chapter 7 as we honor the reading of God's Word. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that this law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh." For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? I wanted to start just by jumping right into kind of an illustration, a story about a fictional couple, although they represent uh, perhaps common experiences of, of, of John and Mary. Mary was a, a wife who worked with children and uh, uh, invested a lot of her energy in working with children. And one particular day, she was having a little bit of a uh, a struggle as one of these kids that she had poured so much time and energy into that she'd seen progress in his own development had dropped out of her program, leaving her feeling a bit exasperated that perhaps her own work was all for nothing. So she was home that day. She's feeling a bit, uh, a bit of despair. And when John, her husband, comes home, uh, he, he too has his own ideas and aspirations, and he's work, been working hard on this dream that one day they can move out of this uh, small house in the city to this bigger place in the country. And in his mind, he's already figured out what this house is going to look like and what it's going to be like and how it's going to be so much better. And sometimes that reflects on the way he talks as he comes home to his old house. And in his mind, he's already moved along, and all he can do is compare and contrast this dream that he has in his mind and the reality that he's in. And occasionally those comments will come out about how small the kitchen is or about how cluttered things are because we don't have space for them. And this was one of those days. They make some comment. But Mary, she just hears it as one more thing that she's not able to do right and is feeling more of a burden on herself now, even perhaps more of a failure. And in the pain that she's feeling, she reacts and she says something about her husband as a way of defending her off her own feelings as though you're just always unhappy. You're just always discontent with everything. And you can imagine how he reacts to this. John is thinking to himself, oh, well, that's not me. That can't possibly be me. I'm not always discontent about everything. So he says something back in a way that's meant to not only defend himself, but also make her feel a little bit of the pain that she's made him feel, which, of course, was the motivation that she had at the same time. I want you to feel some of the pain that I had. And this is the struggle, it, it, this is the struggle that we are all familiar with, uh, and things, of course, don't get better from there, as he knows in his mind, you know, if I can just leave the situation, we can both emotionally cool down, which is a good idea, and so he leaves the room and kind of slams the door a little bit too hard, which, of course, has the effect of further feeling rejection, which is part of what he wanted. And so it just escalates, and it kind of spirals, and you think to yourself, who are these two. Who are John and Mary? Well, John and Mary, believe it or not, were people who had uh, been very active in their church. These are people who had put their faith in the Lord at, a, at an earlier age in their, their lives, and they can still, if you ask them, look back on the time uh, when they first put their faith in Christ and how they saw a very real power at work in their life to, to turn things around. If you ask them to tell their story about when in college they had come to that place of conviction, 
and, and realizing that the gospel meant that Christ had taken away their guilt, He paid for their sin, and it was a personal thing, and it really did set them free to think new ideas. It set them on a new path, and they could look back and tell you very specifically the way in which their lives had literally changed as a result of becoming a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you look at those two things, you think, well, what happened to John and Mary? They know that there is a very real power at work that can turn your life in a new direction. And at the same time, they find themselves in this situation in their marriage, struggling in a way that doesn't reflect any of that power. Now, in Paul's letter in Romans, he's been explaining the gospel. This is the good news of what's happened. And the good news that he just, he just explained in the previous chapter is that the power that you have to overcome the sinful propensity that we have in you is, is the reality that you have been united with Christ. You've been united with Christ in His death, and you've been united with Christ in His resurrection. That's what Romans chapter 6 is all about. And we talk about this, this resurrection power as the power in which you can overcome this old lifestyle, this old person that you are. And that's all well and good, and it's, it's, it's great theologically, it's great rationally. It's one of those things that we get, oh yeah, that makes sense. But in practical terms, how does that work? (laughs) And he knows that this is the theological idea that has to somehow be pressed down into something that translates into real practice and real life experience. And so, when we get to chapter 7, I I think what he's doing is inviting us to see, uh, to take that next step of what does it actually mean to be united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. What does that look like? And so, he's, he, he jumps into talking more about the law, for he's already talking about the law. He's been talking about that, first of all, in Romans 5, and, now, and then in Romans 6, and now he's talking about Romans 7 again, because I think the, he's explaining that a lot of the big trouble that we have in living according to this new power that the Spirit gives us is the fact that we don't really understand our relationship to the law. We forget what is your, our relationship to the law because your relationship to the law is going to tell you everything about the power by which you're trying to live a better life. So, if we ask that question, well, okay, what is my relationship to the law? Well, he says, simply put, you have, you have died to the law. You have died to the law. And he hammers this home by going into an illustration about marriage, about two people, well, when they are married, that they are together by law. They're committed together. They've made these vows together, and they're, they're by law always to be the, together. And if for some reason one leaves and marries another, well, she's, she's, she's in adultery as long as he is still alive. That's, that's the law that they understood at the time. And so the only way that she could be set free to marry another was if one in the party died. And of course, he's already been talking about you've been united with Christ. Well, how can you possibly be united to Christ if you are still married to the law? And that's the image that he's drawing here. If you expect to operate with the power of being united with Christ, you have to recognize that you have died to the law. You are no longer under law, but under grace, as he says. Your relationship to the law has been severed. Now, why is that important? 
to go on? Well, he says there's a couple of reasons why it's important that you recognize that you've died to the law. And the first one, he says in verse 7, which is the immediate purpose, is though that you might belong to another. Look what he says. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. So this connects us right back to what he was talking about in the previous chapter. If you've been united with Christ, that's why you had to die to the law, first of all, so that you could belong to another. But the ultimate purpose, he goes on to explain in the rest of verse 4, as we continue to read, in order that we may, we may bear fruit for God. So if the immediate purpose is that you might belong to another, specifically Christ, who was raised from the dead, the ultimate purpose is that you might bear fruit for God. As we think about, well, what is bearing fruit for God? Well, I mean, that looks a lot like living according to the law, although he's not talking about that. What he's talking about is living in this newness of life. What he's talking about is living in a way where your heart is attached to a new way that Jesus would live. So you are belonging to another in order that you may bear fruit for God. And he says, as long as you are married to the law, you don't have the power to bear fruit for God. That's what he's saying. Now, we can see this all through the New Testament. I mean, he goes on to say it in many ways. In the previous chapter, he talks about how you were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there's that idea of being united with Christ so that you might walk in newness of life. Ephesians which Paul writes uh, to the church in Ephesus, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This idea of bearing fruit for God. And how do we know what these good works look like? Well, he's already told us even that in the previous chapter, Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So there's a, there are all these implications that the law is giving us a picture of what our life is meant to look like, but he's saying as long as you are married to the law, as long as you are united to the law, you don't have the power to do that. So you have to remember that you have died in terms of your relationship to the law. That's the first thing. Now he's anticipating what his readers are going to ask, well, wait a minute, does that mean the law is a bad thing? Is the law a bad thing? And he explains, of course it's not a bad thing. It, has, it does have power, but not the power for you to live a new life. So what is the power of the law? Well, he explains that it has three powers. One, we see this in verse 7, 8, and then 9 through 12. Verse 7, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means, yet Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So here's the first thing that the law can do. The law reveals sin. What's the next thing? Verse 8, as we keep reading, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So, on the one hand, uh, the law reveals sin, but there's another sense in which the law provokes sin while you are under it. This, this sense that, you know, I don't want to be under the yoke of anyone. You're going to tell me I can't do this? Well, that's the very thing all of a sudden I want to do. 
If you have kids, you know exactly what that's like, right? If you were a kid, you know exactly what that's like. And then lastly, in verses 9 through 12, he says the law has the power to condemn sin. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that, I prom- that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So the power of the law isn't to, to grant you the ability to live a new life. The power of the law is what reveals sin, it provokes sin, and it ultimately condemns sin. Now you think, well, why? Why would God want to do that? Well, so that sin might be shown as utterly sinful. So you might be shown beyond a a shadow of a doubt that you have absolutely no ability in yourself to save yourself. That's the point. That you would become a person who is wholly reliant upon the work of God to be stirring something up, new life, in you. That's, that's the whole point of this. That is the point. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing, methods, uh, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. It's as though you can imagine living your life in a physical way, and you and you go to the doctor for some minor thing, and he discovers something major going on inside you. And if you'd never caught it, it would have killed you. Well, the law is like that. You have this thing that's living inside you, and it is going to kill you. And the only way that you're going to be aware of it is through the law. The law makes you aware of this thing in you that will otherwise kill you. So the law does not have the power for us to live a new life It has the power to expose the thing in this that is killing us. So, what's your relationship to the law? You you have to die to the law that you might belong to another and bear fruit for God. And as long as you're under the law, you are unable to bear fruit for God. Instead, what you do under the law is have your own sin exposed, your own sin provoked, and your own sin condemned. So, that leaves us in a bit of a pickle predicament. So, what is the answer? As we jump to the end of the passage, he tells us the answer. So, we're going to jump around just a little bit. Verse 24, he says, "'Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin.'" So, there is this this war going on in, inside a person. And now, I've kind of skipped the big part that's the most controversial part in Romans chapter 7, for it's difficult for us to understand because he's using this, this pronoun I, Paul is writing. And so, we wonder, is Paul writing about his own personal experience before he came to know Christ as an unregenerate person, or is he writing about his experience after he came to know Christ as a regenerate person? And commentators will go back and forth between the two. And we can understand why, because on the one hand, it seems like he's saying, you know, here's a person who, who longs to follow the law, he wants to do what is right, he has the desire to follow the Lord, and you think, well, who, according to the Scriptures, 
is the only one who has an actual desire to follow the Lord. It's someone who's regenerate. And at the same time, he he talks about this person is yet a slave to sin. And in the previous chapter, it seems that he sure was saying, and you you have been set free from your slavery to sin. So, on the one hand, is this a regenerate person because he has a desire, or is an unregenerate person because he's still a slave to sin? So you can see this, the quandary. Who, who, who is it that he's talking about? And there's been so many explanations in, from commentary to commentary that the answer is, I don't really know. <laughs> John Stott has, a, has an interesting take. He says, it's, he said, it's in a unique situation in salvation history in a sense that Paul is talking about the Jew who was under the law, who certainly was regenerate because he was chosen by the Lord, but he, not, he was not yet rejuvenated by the life of the Spirit yet. Now, that's certainly possible, and it would make a bit of sense, especially in the day Paul is writing, because you have this interesting transitional period where there are a lot of those people. But it doesn't really help us as much today in terms of that, because we're long after that in salvation history. And that very well could be the meaning of it, but there certainly are some reflections for us today in our, in our relationship to the law. And I think there's some overlap here in terms of our own experience, simply because the main point that Paul is talking about is not, who is this? But when you try to live under the law, what is it like? I think that's what he's trying to get at. What is it like for the person who is living under the power of the law. Whether he's regenerate or unregenerate, this is the problem that he has. He doesn't have the ability to do it. And one other interesting thing he points out in this section where he's talking about having no ability to do the very thing I want to do, and instead I do the thing I hate, there is, there is this absence of the word spirit. And normally we wouldn't say that's notable except for the fact that the previous chapter is all about the Holy Spirit. And the, the next chapter is all about the Holy Spirit. So we have this, this blank area where there's no mention of living according to the Spirit, and I think that's what Paul's meaning. When we live according to the flesh, which next week Mifflin's going to flesh out for us, right? When we live according to the flesh, we don't have the ability to bear fruit for God. And it is not hard to understand as you look at your own life when there are times when you simply are not walking in such a way that would bear fruit for God. Let's think about some examples. Let's go back to, to, who'd I call them? John and Mary. You know, John and Mary's situation. Well, what's going on? Remember, this is a battle in the mind. What's going on with them? Mary is feeling defeated. She's feeling like a failure. What does she long for? What's at the root of that? What is she longing for? She wants to know that her efforts meant something. She wants to know that her life means something. She wants to feel justified is what she wants. And at the same time, when her husband says words that hurt her, she wants justice, right? She wants her pound of flesh. She wants payback. Now, remember, this is a, this is a waging of war in the mind. Do we understand this? Well, what does the gospel tell us? It tells us two things about justice and about our justification. One, it says God is the judge, and while He has let sins go for a long time apparently unpunished, in the time that Christ came, we understand that the reason He waited 
is so that we would know He is a just God by putting on display His justice by putting His own Son on the cross. So that was a demonstration to the world to know that I am a just judge and I will not allow sin to go unpunished. What does that mean for the believer? It means I don't have to be the judge. Because one of the reasons I think we are so apt to take up the, the, the role of judge is because we think otherwise justice won't come. So he's reminding us in no uncertain terms when Christ died on the cross that, yes, justice will come. I don't have to be the one to extract that pound of flesh. That's not my role. And the same thing, what does it say? He's not only the one who, who brings justice, but he's also the one who justifies. I mean, what he's been talking about in Romans so far is that you have already received justification because you have been united to Christ in His life and resurrection. Romans chapter 5 was all about how the fact that one man's obedience would result in the justification of, of all men who would put their faith in Him. So you have, so Mary's struggle is with two things. She wants justice and when the gospel gets pressed down, which by the way, walking according to the Spirit is what that does, pressing down that truth into our life in a practical measure, I don't have to be the one to execute justice upon my husband. And at the same time, what does she want? She wants to be justified in who she is. And what she sees is it's more important for her to be justified in the courtroom of God, which she is through the work of Christ, than it is to be justified by the eyes of those around her. Now, that's a very hard thing to wrestle through because as a husband and wife, what do we want? We don't want our spouse to think badly of us. We don't want our spouse to think that we are the monster that their words seem to paint the picture that we are. We want so much to defend who we are in terms of our worth and value, especially in the eyes of our spouse. But the gospel tells us that you are justified by the work of Christ and you have justice through the work that Christ is doing. So that sets you free to do other things. Now, it's not that the words that they may have said to one another were necessarily wrong. For example, when she said, well, you're always just discontent, there's probably a hint of truth there, right? John is, is discontent in where he is in a situation. But what motivated her to say that wasn't out of a benefit for him, it was out of a payback for for her. And so it is interesting, while the same very words may be said out of the walking with the Spirit as walking with the flesh, one has power to bring life and one has the power to produce death, depending on all in the way that you are walking. Let me give you another example. Maybe I'll, I'll use Hannah against it, or Mary and Hannah. We'll use Mary and Hannah as a mother and daughter. Uh, Mary is sipping her morning coffee. It's early one morning. She's enjoying her peaceful time. Perhaps she's doing her own Bible reading and prayer time, and, and all of a sudden, a bunch of clunking starts coming down the stairs, and she looks, and now there's two strangers in her house coming down the stairs, startling her and shocking her. And then, and then quickly following is her daughter, Hannah, who now she puts the things together and realizes, oh, these two friends had stayed the night. And it wasn't the first time. And as the as the shuffling and the noise continues disturbing her peace, she eventually says to her daughter, you know, maybe it's time that you find your own place. Because her daughter is an adult, she's working full-time, she really has no milestones left 
that she needs the supervision of parents for. So maybe it was a thing that she absolutely did need for her own growth and development. But the motivation for saying it in that moment is out of annoyance. And Hannah can tell the difference. So what the result is, is it builds a wedge, a further wedge in the relationship. Even though if those words have been spoken in accord with the Spirit, out of a true desire for the benefit and the blessing of her daughter Hannah, you know, she could have bathed him with prayer. She could have picked an appropriate time to say it. She could have sang when she wasn't filled with some levels of emotion that came out in her tone. So the one very same words, when you live, bring, speak them out of, when you're under the law, according to the flesh, they produce death. When you say them when you're walking in the Spirit, they can produce life. Because when you're under the law, you have to fight for justice. When you're under the law, you have to seek your own justification. For a, if we go a deeper level with Mary and what she's dealing with, it's not just that she's annoyed that morning. She's also troubled the fact that she doesn't, again, feel like a success as a parent because she hasn't successfully launched her daughter. So there's more to it, this sense that you're reminding me that I don't feel like I've done a good job and I somehow need to push you out in order that I feel justified and worth in who I am. So there's all these deeper things going on that relate back to our simple understanding of the gospel truths. I'll give you a, a more closer-to-home practical one. For those of you, you know, who have been asked to volunteer for different things at Cornerstone, and I've heard this excuse, I'm not saying that any of you are guilty of this, but I often hear this excuse, well, you know what, that's not, that's not my calling. And you think, well, what's at the heart of that? The heart of that is, I'm looking for a job to do that I think will fulfill me. That's really at the root of that. And the excuse is, that's not my calling. But ultimately, why does God give any gifts? It's not to fulfill you. It's because the church has a particular need or the people have a particular need. In the Holy Spirit, anytime, in the Old Testament, anytime the Holy Spirit came upon a person, it was to uniquely gift them or equip them to do something that was needed in the society. And the same thing is true with the gifting of the Holy Spirit. We just have the Holy Spirit to draw on all the time now. That's not to fulfill you. That's to equip you to meet the needs of the body. Ultimately, what should be driving your decision, can I help in this area, is not, is this my calling, but is this going to help the body to mature? Because that's the ultimate goal of the work of the Holy Spirit, is to mature the body of Christ. How do we get to that place? Remember, there's a war in our mind going on. It's a war to remind us that the gospel is true that you have been justified. You don't have to do the work to justify yourself. And there is a judge. You don't have to be the one to try to execute judgment. That's why Jesus came, to demonstrate both that God is just and the justifier, so that our, in our minds, as we wrestle with that, which, by the way, that's the whole idea of wrestling and pressing it down. We get to Romans 12, he talks about uh, you know, the renewal of the mind. That's what it means to be sanctified, is to have your mind renewed in line with what the gospel says is true. In Romans, he's unpacking all of those little bitty truths so that instead of walking according to the flesh, we now know how to walk according to the Spirit. Or we're beginning 
to understand what it means to walk in the Spirit. And all of that is possible because of the gospel. So let's pray. Thank the Lord. Father in heaven, we are grateful. We are grateful for this gospel which invites us to put our trust in Jesus Christ as the one who died the death that we deserve to die, who lived the life that we owed to you so that we might be declared just in your sight, that we might be united to Christ, that we might bear real fruit for you, Lord, and find joy in doing it. Lord, I pray that you would allow this gospel truth to sink in. In Jesus' name, amen.